Josh Need, ladies and gentlemen. Josh Need. Hello, Tom. Hey, buddy. Let me congratulate you on the significance of your hometown, Cincinnati, Ohio. You're enjoying your time here. Well, and today's the historic day that gay marriage was um, uh, enacted, or uh, the Supreme Court upheld gay marriage in all fifty states. And it was the guy from Cincinnati. That's right. Who filed the the the, the injunction or, or or whatever it was that got the legislation rolling? Well, he's got I, a really difficult last name. I can't. Yeah, I can't think of it either. I do know who you're. It starts with an O, maybe. Something no? nobody could pronounce. It starts it. with a letter. Uh, but maybe yeah, there'll be a statue. He is, guy. yeah. He, uh, I do, I did know uh, recently that uh, that that was the, that guy had uh, was from Cincinnati, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, because they were as conservative as a town this is. Yeah, and uh, they were saying that uh, that there was like uh, like ten years ago, and in the nineties, even like uh, gay people were persecuted and harassed in Cincinnati. So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely. You know, Mark Twain famously said of Cincinnati that when the world ends, he wants to be in Cincinnati because it's 10 years behind everywhere else. <laughs> Did so, Mark Twain say that? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it's always, uh, it's it's almost become comical or cliche here, you know, of how far behind we are in civil rights or, you know, even just upgrading your downtown to have, you know, things that viable cities had provide for their citizens you know Cincinnati was always a when I worked downtown it was always a place that shut down at five no one ever lived downtown but uh like you know we're we're starting to get our act together a little bit Cincinnati's kind of on fire right now like uh I've always been obsessed with travel magazines and the travel section of um you know big newspapers Mm -hmm. and uh Cincinnati's is getting a lot of press for like the food, food, and cool yeah. things to do. Yeah, um, you know, so it's not just chili dogs and hot dogs anymore. I think this is <laughs> um, uh, probably the uh, leading colon cancer uh, place in the world because of you guys like everything fried and with chili. Look <laughs> <laughs> as I sit here on your couch, out of breath from talking for two sentences. No, it's uh, it's definitely on the up and up. I, you know, I've always been a very proud Cincinnatian and, uh, you know, happy to to blow the trumpet for the city whenever I can uh, on a national level. But uh, it's never been a cooler town than it is right now, for sure, with the All-Star Game being here in a couple weeks and, you know, the revitalization of downtown and, like, as a local small business owner as well as a comedian, like, that's very cool for me to see people taking pride in the city. Uh, well, let's talk about Cincinnati's greatest achievements. Uh, number one for me, um, and it's uh, vastly overlooked, is James Brown's, all of his earliest, greatest recordings happened in Cincinnati. I think the first 20 years of his life. Is that Sun Records? Or uh, is that? I, I forget. I can't. I, would, okay. uh, I, I forget. But I, I read his biography and... This is where the, the wherever the first label that believed in him was here. And it's actually funny you say that because uh, there's a, a local art movement here called Artworks. And they basically tap a building once a year to do a giant mural of something, something very cool, something very local. And literally just two days ago, they started on the building that my t-shirt company's in uh, to do a giant James Brown 
young James Brown mural on the side of the building. So they literally just started painting that a couple days ago. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. So uh, there's no reason for me to go see it because it just started. Uh, I would, I would, it would be worth checking Twitter because it's a big team of people that do it and they usually knock them out pretty quick. Cool. I opened up for James Brown once. No kidding. Yeah. And I was so, uh, I mean, one of the honors of my life, but I, I, the man means so much to me. Uh, I read his autobiography that he wrote and, uh, when he was in prison in Augusta, mm -hmm. Georgia, I did a crappy one-nighter there. It was when I was starting out on the Southern Circuits. And I went and sat at the edge of the prison. I parked my car, and I sat on the hood smoking cigarettes listening to James Brown's greatest hits. And I couldn't <laughs> believe that such a talent was behind bars, man. That was my little <laughs> private ceremony. You are, like, the coolest guy ever. <laughs> Every time that you tell a story, I'm just so envious of you. Because you're, you're always like... Oh, where, where you been? I'm like, oh, I went to, you know, I had a one-nighter in Akron. What about you? Well, I was in Kuala Lumpur, and then I was in Winnipeg. And you're a world traveler. You're, you're vocab I'm jealous of your vocabulary. When we were in Aspen a couple months ago, you got to the theater for something that was about to start at a certain time, and it was delayed. And you said, oh, I, I, I rushed over here. I could have sauntered. And I was just like, I was so jealous that you would use the word saunter. And I've tried so hard to use it whenever I can since then. I remember that. I, could, I ran over here when I could have sauntered. Yeah. <laughs> Aspen is a good place to saunter. <laughs> it really is. It really is. So that was cool. We did that Aspen Festival. And, uh, you know, I hadn't seen you in many years. And I always thought you were funny. But you are legitimately a head-crunching headliner now. Thank you, man. Yeah. Like, that means a lot coming from you. Like, you know, our relationship will always stick out to me because, and I'm sure you can speak to this to greater detail than I, but it's, it's such a small world doing stand-up, and you feel like you know people before you ever get a chance to meet them because of the same circles that you run in and the stories that you hear about them. And not, there's a, a long list of people like that that before I even met them, I knew I was going to like them. Uh, you know, Jamie Lisso and Tom Simmons and Kostaki Konomopoulos and uh, Chad Daniels. They're just people that I would meet someone and they would go, you would really like this person. And then when I finally got to meet that person, that was spot on. And you were that person for me because of the way that Mitch Hedberg spoke about you. And of course, being a fan of your stand-up, um, you know, when I met you, my dad was in his final stages. I on January 1st of 2008, uh, he was basically given a month to live from his bout with pancreatic cancer. And I had three weeks booked that month. And I was like, I need to make some money because I can't just not work the whole month, but I want to be home. And I looked at the weeks and I was booked with you in Atlanta and I had not met you yet. And I was like, that's the one that I'm keeping. And then little did I know that week that you were in the, I guess, early stages of, of dealing with your sister's uh, breast cancer. And I don't know, I just, I've, I felt like that week that was where I was supposed to be, that I had made the right decision. And then, of course, as a comedian and a fan of comedy, watching you lived up to all the expectations that I had as well. I remember that week. You were worried about getting back in time. And yeah. then your, your dad was hanging on by a thread. 
Well, it was a weird couple weeks after that, too, because when we were in Atlanta, they, they basically, the people at the club said, we're doing a showcase here in a couple weeks, and we can't really tell you what it's for, but if you would like to come back and do this show, we really think you should. It'd be good for you. And I said, well, my dad has been given a month to live, and, and when that show was going to be was about one month to the day. And I said, I, I just don't know that I can get back down to Atlanta from Cincinnati. And they were very kind and said, you know, even if it's that afternoon, if you can make it down here, you have a, you have a place. And I remember um, a friend of mine got me a buddy pass, like a Delta buddy pass. And I was able to come down literally that day for that showcase. And uh, I, had a, I had a good set. At the end of the show, uh, Bill Bellamy walks out and says, I'm sure you all wonder why you're here. You don't know it, but you just auditioned for Last Comic Standing, and I'm taking two of you to New York with me this week. And you don't have to wait in line. You don't have to get in front of any producers. You're on the show. And they picked me and one other guy. And, uh, and I was very flattered i was very excited but at the same time i said i don't know that i can leave again because my dad is literally in his last days and they said uh we'll call home and let us know so i called home and my dad at that point was really having a lot of trouble even talking but he and my mom said you know you've been working hard for these kinds of opportunities you you have to take them there's nothing you can do here you know go do the show and come back when you can so um so i flew home from atlanta on my way to my parents house from the airport my mom called and said that they were going to move my dad to hospice so then i really knew that he was in his final days and um nbc gave me the last flight out on thursday night the show was going to be friday and they booked me for the first flight home saturday morning so thursday night i was just an absolute wreck you know, my dad could hardly talk, and uh, my whole family was there. They were like, he wants you to go. You got to go. So I fly to New York, try to sleep. Finally, I don't know what time I fell asleep, but then about 7 a.m., my wake-up call was that my dad had passed away in his sleep, and my I was supposed to do Last Comic Standing, the show, later that night. So, wow. Did so you was, do it? I did, and... Uh, I had a good set. I was happy with it. You know, there's nothing I would have done differently. It's kind of one of those things where I felt like they were really casting for a show versus taking the people who did the best. And you know, I was I was a white guy, and they got a lot of those. So, uh, well, and it's so difficult as a comedian to go on stage when you're dealing with some grief. It was very odd because I literally felt, and I've said this before, it felt like on what was absolutely the saddest day of my entire life without any hyperbole it was the most important for me to be the funniest that i've ever been in my life like it was a very weird you know yeah like when my, my, when my sister died um it felt really good to go on stage and kind of put my brain on a shelf mm -hmm. And, and think about something else because I was so wrapped up in grief. Absolutely. And I could think of nothing else through the day. Yeah. And then, you know, um, you're a good guy to talk to this about because, you know, for the couple years after, you know, my dad died, 
November 2009. My sister died April 2011. And then, you know, for a couple years after that, man, was really difficult. Yeah. I had a lot of anger uh, right after she died. And then, like, you know, when you're full of anger and grief, um, you're not thinking a lot of funny thoughts. Right, right. So uh, did it affect your, your writing? And, I mean, the performing thing wasn't a problem. Right. Because I've always known how to do that. Right. But as far as like turning over happy new shit, uh, it, it was a, it was. A... Yeah, you know, and I've never been as prolific as I'd like to be. You know, I get jealous of other comics who are so cranking out new material. <laughs> you know, uh, I've I've always been one to sort of like see if I can really refine what I was currently doing. Cause I, you know, I always looked at Ron White as the example, and maybe he's the exception to the rule of someone who told, had the same act for so long. And then it just, there wasn't a lot of people who had heard it. So when he finally got the opportunity to be on a big stage, his, his act was so refined with just, I mean, it was so solid from beginning to end that it wasn't like, all of a sudden, who's this guy? It was just, he he mined that material until the time was right that he could take advantage of being able to deliver it. And and I've just always had that mentality of like, why am I in such a hurry to crank out new material when I know this is good stuff and I just need the audience to be able to hear it, you know? And I, I don't know that that's always the right mindset, but it was always the mindset that I had. So when I was going through that with my dad, I don't feel like, you know, I was in a... A rush to put out anything new it was really just getting by and uh, what I found was you know so many times as I'm sure you've heard people come up to you after the show and they're I mean it ranges from I had a bad day to I lost my job I'm going through a divorce somebody died whatever the case is and they say thank you for giving me like a temporary escape from it or this is yeah. the first night I've been out in forever and I didn't want to come but I'm so glad I did. And what I think that is, is is not that that you as a comedian are speaking to that individual person. You're just creating an environment that it's infectious for people to not have a good time when everyone around them is having such a great time. And I think that comedy sort of paid me back in that time after my dad passed in that, like you said, it was like I could put my brain on the shelf. I could just get up there, get in the zone, and then just not think about it for a while. And just not thinking about it, there was something therapeutic in that. It is beautiful, the healing power of comedy, you know, uh, and you don't know who you're going to affect. My first Comedy Central special, some guy sent me an email, and his grandmother was dying of cancer. And uh, it was his turn. Everyone in the family got a turn with the grandmother before she died. And they were watching Comedy Central when it was his turn to be with his grandmother and they watched my entire special and they <laughs> laughed together and then they talked about some of the jokes that I did afterwards and the guy wrote me and said one of the greatest uh, memories I'll ever have of my grandmother is laughing with her at your special that's amazing and like that Jesus that gave me enough fuel to go 10 more years yeah and then some woman sent me an email after my my, she saw my Netflix special and her, her husband had died of some terrible disease. And she said she was, um, she said that I made her laugh when there wasn't even a smile. Wow. Yeah. It's so weird. So, you know, you get down on yourself about like, 
shit in the business and like this chumpy hotel was going to kick me out today because the club fucked up on the reservation and you just, you know, just irritable. You know, yeah. you see some comic doing a fucking line of yours or yeah. all these little irritations that happen in the business. But um, you really, there's there's no comparison to the unexpected and unknown ways that you right. touch people's lives. I wrote a blog um, that was almost exactly that. It was called It's Worth It. And basically the, the tone of it was, at the end of the day, it's worth it. The missed flights, the lost luggage, the terrible hotels, being away from your family. It's still, the worst day of comedy is still better than the best day of any other job I've ever had. And... You know, for me, the story that jumps out and the reason that I wrote that was um, I was doing shows in Baltimore and um, there's a big military population there. And this girl and her brother came out to my show and uh, and I said that he told me he was in the military and he was getting ready to be deployed again, but he was about to go on a, a small break. And I gave him a, a CD and I said... Um, Take this with you and maybe, you know, it'll give you a laugh once in a while when you're over there. And then we're just, you know, chatting and they go, where are you next? And I said, well, next week I'm in Grand Rapids. And they were like, get out of here. They're like, we're from Grand Rapids and we're going home before he gets deployed to see our parents. So they came out the very next week in Grand Rapids. So one week in Baltimore, the next week in Michigan, the same people came out and that never happens for especially for somebody like me that i could be that far apart that have people at the same show so about a year later i get an email from this girl and she said i don't know if you remember us but my brother was in the military and um you gave him a cd and he listened to it all the time and we we always went back and forth with your jokes and he was killed in iraq and she was just like I found your CD and I started listening to it and it made me smile and it always makes me think of him. And that's when I was just like, what other job gives you that opportunity for someone to be able to say like, you can make things better for me at the worst possible time, you know? So for me, that was just like, I felt like comedy kind of paid me back a little. That's beautiful. How hard, how difficult was that? The biggest tragedy you've had to deal with your dad dying. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and then you're doing like a television taping, so that's like, yeah, you really got to. And and comedy and uh, NBC knew what was going on, so they had a camera in my face every second that I was there, hoping you were going to cry, trying to get a good story. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, really. And of course, my family's not helping because I'm calling mm. my, you know, I'm I'm calling back to where my whole family's gathered together because my dad had just passed away and they're, you know, my mom gets on the, or my aunt gets on the phone and she says, uh, she was like, well, he probably went ahead and and died so that he'd be able to watch you tonight. Well, I'm like, I'm going on stage <laughs> on TV in 10 minutes. You cannot talk to me like you that. You think right about now. your dad floating overhead. <laughs> right. <laughs> Shaking his head. I told you not to do that tag. But, uh, yeah, that's probably... Because what's weird is right after that, everything that's been such a positive in my life personally happened right after that. What, having a kid? 
getting married, meeting my wife, getting married, having a kid. And that's when the material started cranking back out again, was when I started what in essence was just life experiences, but coming at the right time where I was like, I needed new material. I hadn't written anything in a while. And then, you know, when I least expected it, I, I met the person who is now my wife and, you know, I started writing material about the dating and then the, the engagement process and then the planning of the wedding and then the wedding and then the, you know, the pregnancy. And then now the kid is going to be four next week. So that's just endless material, you know, but it's, it's weird how that all timed out because the, the day of my dad's visitation was the day that I swore I was never going to date anyone again because my girlfriend at the time said like the worst thing anybody's probably ever said to me after my dad's visitation, she says, uh, so were there like a lot of your ex-girlfriends there today? <laughs> and I was like... At your dad's... At my dad's visitation. What's his visitation? Like when he was sick? Where? No, no, no. At the, at at the, the funeral. The, the layout before the night before the funeral. Oh. Is that not common everywhere? Uh, visitation, um, isn't that, that's like a people, wake. Like, a, yeah, like a wake, sort of. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's where I was raised Southern Baptist, so there wasn't, you know... I always picture like a wake as like a... Irish people Every, sitting and drinking. Yeah, telling stories, right. you know. It, this is just, you know, you go to the funeral home the night before from, you know, what's, it was supposed to be from 6 to 8, but people were there at 4 and, and were still there at 11. It was an amazing testament. Well, it's funny, like, I, I know when my dad died, and I was really close with my dad. He's the reason I'm a comedian. Um, what hit me was that life is not one continuous ribbon unfolding that you realize your mortality. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I, I realized, uh, I mean, you know, I've always had this matador samurai, you know, the uh, samurai should concentrate on death every day. So when it happens, it means nothing. All these like things I've read about death. I mean, it just doesn't hit, it doesn't really shake your world until, uh, especially you lose a parent is huge. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it, it kind of, I don't know, gave me some urgency in life or, mm -hmm. um, it just made me realize that, you know, um, it's, it's not continuous and forever. Right. And I'm next. <laughs> well, you but know, I wasn't, you weren't, um, thank goodness for all of us. Um, the first week that I did on the road after he died was in Houston at the laugh spot. And uh, Don Learned, who I'm sure you know. Love Don. Um, is a give-it-to-you-straight kind of guy. He's always been that way with me. And uh, he was the perfect person that I needed to be around in the comedy world, you know, when, when I was dealing with that. And, you know, he gave me a lot of insight. And, and the same thing with me. I don't think I ever had a realization of mortality than I did after my dad passed. What's the funniest expression your father used to use? Uh, my favorite line was whenever I would say something and people would laugh and then look at him and he would say, I taught him everything I know and he's still <laughs> stupid. That's still my favorite line that he, that, you know, I, that it was one of, in one of his uh, go-tos. What uh, is one of the funniest things you remember he ever said or did? You know, I don't know if I could isolate one thing I think 
he's the reason I became a comedian in that his persona was the guy that everybody went to when they needed to feel better, you know? And I think I, I caught on to that at an early age. Like, I don't, I don't know that there's like one joke he always told or one specific thing, but it was just like, I picked up on the fact that everybody liked him and I felt like it was because he was always funny and just making people laugh. And I think that that's, you know, because you, you hear a lot of people, like I said, I grew up in a Southern Baptist home, so I hear a lot of comics talk about their parents playing George Carlin or Lenny Bruce or Richard Pryor records, you know, and that wasn't my house. Like, we we were in church twice on Sunday and every Wednesday, so I wasn't influenced by comedy per se. I was influenced by my dad, who was a funny person, and then I sort of developed my own sense of humor through the little bit of stand-ups that I saw on TV and Saturday Night Live would probably be my two biggest influences. You know, I remember Jake Johansson, uh, Stephen Wright, Wendy Liebman, uh, Larry Miller. Like, those are, my, those are my favorite people that I would watch on the Evening at the Improv. Amazing Jonathan. I think there, there's little pieces of all of them in my act. You know, like, one-liner, wordplay misdirection, timing, storytelling, and then just silliness. What's the best thing you got out of going to church? Um, Other than donuts. <laughs> probably just probably just be a good person, you know what I mean? Like, That's what I was hoping. When my mom took me to church when I was a kid, I was like, oh, well, they got donuts. donuts. <laughs> yeah, you know, for me, it was, uh, I think just... Be a nice person. You know what I mean? Like, I think that the one fundamental thing that most religions have is just like, that is something that everyone should adopt is just be nice to other people. You know what I mean? Like, have a, have a little bit of guilt about yourself to keep you from just doing whatever you want. And I think that was, that was really driven home for me um, as a, as a kid, you know, the guilt side of it, but, um, I'll take that quote further and it's, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Right. Sure. So it says that in every religion. So I was in Boston in February and I went to Cambridge, um, to, went to Harvard. Uh, they got a, the natural history museum. There's incredible. It's all this stuff that rich white guys at Harvard stole from all <laughs> over the world. And, uh, so I'm walking across the Harvard campus, and these two guys were walking towards me. One like a guy looked maybe kind of Pakistani or some kind of darker shade, um, and he's talking to a, a white guy, and they're walking. And the darker guy uh, is this is just a snippet of conversation I heard as I'm walking past. He goes, "If the book says that we should love others as we love ourselves, doesn't that mean? Doesn't that imply?" that we should love ourselves first. And that never fucking dawned on me. For wow. some reason, I'm like, wow. You, I mean, if you love yourself, then you're going to be less of a cock. Yeah. You know? So, that, I mean, like... That's a that, great... That, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that quote that we've all heard our entire life uh, was taken just a little bit deeper. And, yeah. And uh, I can't afford to go to Harvard, but I can eavesdrop. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, well, I mean, and then you pass it down. You learn a word like saunter, and then I hear it from you, and I start using it and impressing all my Kentucky friends. Um, well, I'm so much of an idiot. I actually thought it was eavesdrop. Uh, I, I learned after telling someone that story that there's I, a V in there. There's a V in there. <laughs> um, so I appreciate you giving me a lot of credit. But. Well, you know, I think that the problem and and. God, I really feel like I should try to be funnier on this. <laughs> but the problem that Facebook and Twitter perpetuate with religion and politics and just social issues in general is they make it seem that the entire groups of people are defined by the actions of a few, right? But they're the first ones to say, don't lump me in with this person just because we share this similar religion or you know what I'm saying like I see like a lot of my white friends they try to define all black people by the actions of a couple black people but if a guy goes and shoots up a church in South Carolina they're like well that's just one white guy that's doing that you know what I mean and I think that you know when I see people bash like all religion or everything like it it's hard for me because I had a lot of issues with the church I grew up in. I felt like there was a lot of hypocrisy. But at the same time, I felt like the the real, for lack of a better word, genesis of it was people who just got together a couple times a week to remind them that there's other good people in the world. You know what I mean? Like, I don't feel like I came from a church that was like just fire and brimstone on everybody and gloom and doom and the whole world is wrong I felt like the majority of people in that church were just nice people that just wanted to be around other nice people and I think that's probably what a lot of religious people at least in the United States feel right? I mean, do you agree with that? Yeah, well I mean I I think that you know um, all religions bring good people good things to people you know, and I think we could learn something from every religion. Uh, and it's the fanatics in everything right. that fuck up everything. Sports, right. music, right. Uh, the internet. It's the fanatics who are fucking things up. Um, but I had a friend become a huge born-again Christian freak years ago. And, uh, and he was a nice guy to begin with. But then after he became a real born-again Christian... He could only see evil in the world. He was like, oh man, you see, that's a, that's a satanic symbol over there. And this, yeah. and then like, you know, uh, that, that, that doesn't, uh, that impedes growth. Yeah. Uh, to, to see, I, I mean, you know, um, evil certainly exists in the world, but you know, um, I like the happier side of religion. Yeah. And I think that there are certain people who... They need they need that inner thought that something bad will happen to them if they do something wrong, right? Like right. They need to feel like there's a consequence to keep them from doing something that other people just inherently say, well, you just don't do that. Right. You know? Not, you, don't, you don't not do it because you're going to go to hell. You just, you don't do it because you're <laughs> a decent human. And I think some people don't need that and some people do. It's just, I hate when people stereotype and just lump everything in together of like, well, if you go to that church, that means you believe all these things. Well, I, you know, the, that, the, the Charleston families forgiving that human turd yeah. that killed their loved ones, um, that really blew me away. 
and that kind of reset my whole life. Right. The fact that less than 24 hours later, they could stand there and forgive that guy. Yeah. And then the antithesis is the Boston bomber being in court. Him saying, I'm sorry. The very, it was like a two days later. Yeah. And though, and everybody would be like, like just in it to his face, you know, not good enough. Yep. Sorry. No, don't yeah. want to hear it. Um, well, speaking of, um, godlike figures, let's talk about Mitch Hedberg. I'd love to. What, uh, what are your, your greatest, uh, memories? Oh, man. Um, you know, like he's, um, with all due respect to you, I mean, he's the king for, I mean, like he's, when I, when I mentioned those comics earlier that I had seen as a, as a kid growing up, Stephen Wright was far and away my favorite. Just his, I love that one-liner, the wordplay. Like it was just a, that was that hit me. So I'll never forget. I'm the guy who used to run the club here in town. Go bananas! Brought me into his office, um, and he said, "I'm thinking about bringing this guy to the club. What do you think?" And he played. That was the first time I saw Mitch Hedberg, and I had read an article about him in Time magazine claiming that he could be the next Seinfeld right after he did Montreal, but I hadn't seen any of his stand-up. So he puts in this tape, and it was a set from uh, the, the Louis Anderson uh, show. And uh, and me, I said, I was like, if you bring this guy here, please let me open for him. Like, I just beg, like, please let me have this week as his MC. So he booked Mitch, and he booked me to MC, and um, I was like, just smitten like immediately like as a comic I was just this is my guy and um, normally he brought his wife Lynn on the road with him and this weekend this particular week he didn't and I was booked to MC in Dayton the very next week when they had a fallout of their headliner and she basically called the club and said ask Mitch Hedberg if he'd like to stick around this area for another week and work in Dayton so he did, and I worked with him back-to-back two weeks, and Lynn wasn't with him, so I spent a ton of time with him. And um, he paid for a, he found out I was driving back and forth from Cincinnati to Dayton, so he insisted that I get a hotel up there for the weekend in Dayton. We went to the movies. He we paid went, for it. Yeah, yeah, went to the movies. And, that, and, and this was all brand new to me from anyone, let alone someone who was skyrocketing to the top of my list as far as comedians go to be able to have this guy treat me that way and um and so then the go bananas ended up this was 1999 go bananas ended up bringing him back that year for new year's eve the 99 2000 and uh booked me to host that week as well so within six months i'd emceed for him three times and it was that weekend of uh new year's eve that he said would you like to go do a gig with me and I had my day job at the time, and I said, absolutely, I don't care where it is, when it is. And he said, it's in Grand Forks, North Dakota, for Valentine's Day. Edberg loved that gig. I did, I did too, when it was... Edberg, even after he got huge, he was still... The doing, Westward Ho. He still was doing that gig. And um, so I took, my, to the shock of my co-workers at Procter & Gamble, I used vacation days to go to North Dakota and... Mid February, <laughs> and uh, I flew to Minneapolis, and I met up with Mitch and Lynn, and uh, a comedian from North Carolina named Mike 
uh, Mike Spurlock and his wife, and then Chuck Savage, who played the bass for Mitch on the album where he has yeah, the yeah, bass yeah. playing. Yeah, I know Chuck. So uh, we all hopped in a van. I mean, this is like this is like what I dreamed about, you know, when I started doing stand up. It was like hearing stories like this, and now I was going to a gig with Mitch Hedberg, and then. Um, 2001, I quit my day job, and Mitch basically said, I, where, what club are you trying to get into that you can't? And I said, uh, Houston Laugh Stop. And so he called me back an hour later, and he said, we're going to the Laugh Stop the first week after you quit your day job. So he took me to the Laugh Stop, and then he said, where else? And I said, Seattle, Atlanta. you know. And then all of a sudden, he was just... He'd call me and say, "All right, this is where we're going," and he'd get he'd get me in the club as his middle, so that I could you know get booked back later. Because I was I was getting booked at the clubs that were booking me, but I was having trouble getting in the first time. And Hedberg was taking me out to open for him, and it was just the most surreal thing for me personally because it was like my favorite comic. So what are your best memories? What are your favorite moments? Um, well, as you know, Mitch, uh, he was his worst critic. Uh, you know, if, even if he was doing well, if he didn't think he was doing well, he would harp on it. So there were many times where he would be laying down behind the couch on the stage, you know, because he didn't want the people to have to look at him. I remember one time here at Go Bananas, he had a wireless mic and he followed a girl into the bathroom and he was doing his jokes from the bathroom. And I remember him saying, like, if this works, I'll never have to go on the road. Because the room of people were just laughing at his voice. You know, he wasn't even in the room. Um, I'd say my favorite memory was actually the last time that I saw him. He was on tour uh, for Comedy Central with Stephen Lynch and Al Madrigal was opening. And they were at a theater in uh, Kalamazoo, Michigan. And I was passing through that area. And he said, you know, stop by and hang out. So I, I just came to hang out. And then uh, and then he basically made me do a guest set on a theater show, which I don't know if people have the appreciation for how crazy that is. But for a, a giant show of, you know, several thousand people to just say, hey, go out there and do a quick set. Like that just doesn't happen, you know. And uh, But that's how he always treated me. And uh, I think that's probably my... That probably summed up best my memory of him in terms of how he treated me was that there was no show that he didn't say, hey, I want you to do some time on. So uh, what are your fun, any funniest moments? Um, we went bowling. I mean, it was just my memories with him are so weird because, you know, he had that he had the dark side that everybody knows about, but he never tried to. He never tried to bring me into that because he knew it wasn't my thing, you know. So there was just points in the week or in the night where we would say goodbye and I knew that he wasn't going to bed and he knew that I wasn't going to bed. But, the, you know, we never we never really talked about it. I don't know if I was ever that close to feel comfortable talking about it, but I always appreciated that, you know, because... Um, you know, you know how comics are. I mean, I heard you talking about it with Jesse Joyce on here about, you know, people who don't drink talk to people uh, who do drink and that person can't believe that that person's not drinking. Like, right. there's something wrong or something crazy. Are you spying on me? Yeah. 
I've been listening to your boring fucking stories for the last hour. Yeah, <laughs> I'm spying on you. I've, I mean, I've never drank. I've never tasted alcohol. You've never drank alcohol I've in your entire life? I've never had one drop of alcohol. Wow. Um, and, and that stemmed from growing up in a Southern Baptist home. It was We didn't have it in our house. And then I immediately went from uh, my first two years in college into doing stand-up. And it, and it was like... I was surrounded by reasons why I probably shouldn't start drinking. It wasn't a religious thing. It was just... Yeah, but there's a lot of pressure, and you're hanging out with comedians, right. and they're all drinking. You know, At every for me, level. Cigarettes and alcohol were like, oh, yeah, man, I'll blend in if I drink and smoke. And I never had that. I never had that in college where I felt like I needed to. And then by the time that I was around it in the comedy world, whether it was just like other open micers, like I didn't, I didn't feel... Like, oh, I need to get in with this group. And that's what I really respected the most about Hedberg because I feel like if there was ever a real pressure that I might have succumbed to, it would have been when my favorite comedian, who's basically helping me jumpstart my comedy career, were to try to pressure me into that. And he never did even one time. What is uh, the greatest thing you learned about comedy from Hedberg? Um, I loved, I loved how much he valued every show. Like no matter how few or how many people were there, he wanted to be at his best, you know, like I really believe. And, and he, he had that rare, he's to the, to this day, the only person that I've ever seen build up such a following of people who knew his jokes by heart, word for word. And and because of that, it was so important to him to crank out new material. Like I would see him literally a couple months later with just 40 minutes of new jokes and he was so proud of them and he was so f- proud for these people who were becoming giant fans of his to be able to hear new material. And then at the end of it, they would want to hear the jokes that they knew by heart. And he would do another 40 minutes of, uh, of material that people would say verbatim with him. And they were so excited. Like, I've never seen any comedian achieve that sort of status of, like, someone wanting to hear their favorite song at a, at a concert. You know what I mean? Uh, I'll say, I, I'll give you one example, one of my favorite memories of working with him. As you probably know, like if you hang out with him enough, you start to write like him and you start to kind of get his cadence. You know, it's just infectious the way he speaks. And I was coming up with little one-liner jokes that I would try to give him and he would always say, no, you need to do it. And I'm like, well, it doesn't make sense in my act because it's just this, you know, like non-sequitur, like weird little one-liner. And he's like, you can figure out a way to get him funny in your act. They're really good, but I'm... I." I'm not going to do your jokes. So one night we were in Atlanta and he tells the audience, he's like, Josh wrote all these jokes for me, but I think they're funny and I want him to do them, but he thinks it'll only be funny if I do them. So I'm going to bring him back on stage to do the jokes that he wrote for me and you guys tell me what you think. So I came back on stage like halfway through his set and then I would close my eyes and do my impression of him and do the jokes that I wrote for him and everybody would love it. And then after that first night, every time we worked together, he would start doing that, where he would have me come up and do the jokes I wrote for him as him. 
cool in the middle of his set. It's amazing the impact that he had because uh, I was at a friend of mine's wedding in Austin, Texas, and he I had met him. He was from Houston, uh, Tyler Hansen. He's done my website for years. He came and saw me and Hedberg used to do these co-headline shows in Houston, and he saw us. And then so it was somebody's, it was the grandparents that came over to me and said, um, the, the, the grandfather, I heard you were friends with Hedberg. And he's like talking to me about, you know, every time I get on an escalator, I think about that guy. <laughs> or uh, when I see cinnamon, yeah, when I smell cinnamon. Pringles. And uh, there's a, a great um, female comedian in Paris, this Dutch girl, um, Sand Van Roy, who's been on this show. She Hedberg's her all-time hero. She's a Dutch girl living in Paris. And uh, I was just in uh, Guangzhou, China, mm -hmm. and there was a local comedian from Bulgaria. And he told me him and his buddy in university in Bulgaria used to watch Hedberg clips on YouTube and they memorized all that. It's just amazing. It is. And I feel lucky in that, you know, when I was first starting out, I would hear stories about Bill Hicks or Kinnison or people who got to work with these legends and just be like, oh man, that, how cool is that? You know, not realizing that the stories that I was making with Hedberg, I could tell young comics today and they're just like, what? Like, you hung out with Mitch Hedberg? You opened for Mitch Hedberg? Like, here's another example. So the first album that I was recording was when I was opening for Ron White. And we were in Chattanooga. And the MC had the craziest southern accent that you've ever heard. He went by Cousin Ricky on stage. <laughs> and, uh, and so I was having these great sets in front of these amazing crowds. But the intro was, ladies and gentlemen... Please welcome Josh Snead. And the next week I was with Hedberg in Nashville and he was asking me how it went. And I was like, the, it went great, except for the intro. I was like, I got to figure out what I'm going to do for this intro because it just sounds so ridiculous. And he said, well, do you want me to record an intro for you? And I was like, oh my God, that would be amazing. And he was like, all right, let's do it. So I had my little recorder and uh, he said, uh, hey, everybody, it's Mish Hedberg. Grab a drink, sit back, relax, and listen to the comedy stylings of my favorite, Josh Sneed. And that was the intro for my first CD because he wanted to make sure I had a good one. Cool. And then you cut into the set that you and recorded. It, it, it <clears throat> faded into the audience clapping when I went. And Cousin it. Ricky to this day is pissed. He's still mad about it. <laughs> I got cut that out. son of a bitch. <laughs> uh, wow. What is the greatest advice you've ever been given as a comedian? Well, you know, a lot of, you know how it is, like young comics will come up to you and I was that young comic going, hey, how do, what do I do? Like, how do I get better? And there's no magic answer uh, other than just getting on stage and, you know, I, w I got really good piece of advice. First, the first piece of advice I was told was hang out, and this is from Todd Yon. I don't know if you know Todd. Of course, or. yeah. So he said, hang out at the club whenever you can. When you're not performing, watch the professionals, watch how they handle the check drop or a heckler or what they do with the mic stand or, you know, how they play to the whole room. And that was amazing advice when I was starting out was just 
just being a sponge, like, you know, not trying to just get on stage every time I could, but sit in the back and just watch. And then probably the best lesson that I, that I ever got was from Dan Whitney, Larry, the cable guy, when I was opening for him on this tour, we were in uh, Seattle at this theater and I think our show collectively was an hour and 40 minutes and we spent four hours in the lobby after the show so that everybody that wanted to meet him could meet him. And he, on that tour, but specifically that night, taught me that people are coming out to see you do your best to make it worth their while, you know? Like he said, the, the guy who waited in line four hours didn't even buy anything. He, he handed me a phone and asked me to say hi to his brother. He's like, that guy will remember that for the rest of his life. And, and I was just, it changed my whole attitude on how to value your audience. You know, Tim Cavanaugh is another one. When I started out, I would, I, I would go on stage if there was only a handful of people there and I would make them feel like they made a mistake by deciding to come, you know, and, and I would watch him go up. And I remember he went up in front of four people and killed, gave him the show just like it was a full room killed and, and that night I learned, do the show like it's a full room, you know? And it's just, that's what's been great is that, I mean, I'm 37, but I've been doing this 18 years and, you know, I've been 14 years full time. And it's just those little lessons that you learn. There's not really like one good piece of advice. It's just like, I took something away from this show. And as long as I feel like I'm never plateauing as a comic then I'll stay doing it. I just, I said to myself when I started, I, I never want to be one of those comics that's just still doing the road, taking whatever gig they can because it's the only thing that they know. Or they're not, they haven't updated their act in forever, you know? Like I never wanted to be that comic. And so I've just, I always have to feel like I'm progressing. Even if it's just a little bit or I have to take a break here and there because of life. As long as I'm still trying to get better and somewhat of an upward climb, then it's still fun for me. Because I, I just, I don't know about you, but like it's, I just can't, when I hear people complain about the, the negatives of being a comic, it just, it bothers me because it's like, if you really look at it from a high level, like we're so lucky to make a living doing this. Yeah, well, <clears throat> there are a lot of petty little bitches in this business. Um, Unfortunately, I mean, and it is the greatest life imaginable and it is so easy to change someone's life for the better. Yeah. Just, you know, like you like talking to people after shows, just, just being kind, just, you know, you know, um, just being accessible. Right. To but you also have to, you also have to have the mindset of this is still fun. Like, and I, and I still have room to grow as a person, but as a comic, as a professional, like I love that I can watch you or Christopher Titus or Robert Hawkins or Bill Burr and still to this day laugh like I've never seen comedy before. You know what I mean? Like I love that there's people out there that make me go, what, why am I 
what what am I doing in this business? You know, like I'll never be that good. But it gives me something to strive for instead of just being like, eh, I'm just working here this week and it's just a paycheck, you know. Uh, can we talk about some of your extracurricular activities? Sure. Like um, the um, the Twitter? Yeah, yeah. Can we talk about that? Yeah, we Did can talk you, about it. You are the official... Not a, I wouldn't say I'm the official. You're the secret. I'm the voice. Twitterer and for Facebooker. Airheads Candies. Airheads and Mentos. And uh, yeah, it's crazy, you know. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a fairly clean comic. I'm going to start following uh, Mentos and Airheads. Maybe not Mentos, but Airheads. I like Airheads. Um, I wish I would have known. I could. My basement looks like a candy <laughs> store. I could have brought you... A, that could have brought you some that last you for a long time. And I especially like the sour ones that uh, have Extremes. the gay rainbow on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big day for the candy today. Um, it's It just kind of came out of nowhere. You know, I also have a t-shirt company, which has a nice local following here. And the parent company <clears throat> of Airheads and Mentos is an Italian company called Perfetti Van Mel. And they are, uh, they're based here. In, they're North American operations are based here in the Cincinnati area and uh, randomly I get an email from this girl who uh, she she said I work for Airheads and I'm um, I'm I started the Twitter and Facebook when we didn't even have it it wasn't part of my job but it's grown to a point where it's like a second job and I'm not getting paid any extra to manage it I don't want to have an ad agency do it because I don't want it to look like it's an advertisement every time we post something on Facebook or Twitter. And I thought maybe it'd be fun to have a comedian do it. And she said, uh, I'm a, I know you own this t-shirt company and I love how you guys run your social media. And my husband's a big fan of your stand-up. And do you want to do it? And, uh, and so she told me what it paid and told me that I could work from anywhere. And, she, and it basically consists of, uh, you know, me taking pictures with my iPhone of the candy and coming up with some kind of wordplay or, you know, I'll, I'll take it out to the beach when I'm on the road or I'll take it to some landmark in some city that I'm visiting. And put a put some Mentos under, like, the Abraham Lincoln Memorial? Yeah. Something like that? Yeah. Abe everybody's Mentos. Everybody's free to eat Mentos <laughs> or something like that. What has been your best candy tweet? The one that got the best response, and I don't, it's it's sort of, uh, people in the advertising business would know how big this is, but there's a website called Mashable, and it's basically like all things advertising, especially for online stuff. And one of the really cool things that Mentos and Airheads have done is they've, they've used Twitter to target the audiences of certain very popular TV shows. So they've tried to engage in the conversation around The Walking Dead, or in this case, Game of Thrones. And so uh, the, for the Game of Thrones premiere last year, uh, I went out to the yard. I had a little bottle of Mentos gum. I put it in my hand and I stuck my hand up to the blue sky backdrop and I took a picture of just my hand. And then I got online and I found a, a picture of a dragon in the sky. And I photoshopped the dragon. It looked like it's coming down to get the Mentos out of my hand. And, uh, and that was one of the tweets that, that we posted. And um, Mashable. And, and Mashable did an article about how brands were engaging with the Game of Thrones audience. And uh, they, they picked their favorites. And it was 
it was Bud Light, Delta, Netflix, and a couple others. But I, but I but my hand, <laughs> you know, and 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 that a lot of these other companies they, they pay Boku bucks for their for their ads, you know. And mine was an iPhone with my hand out in my backyard and a little bit of Photoshop, and it was right there with the big players and uh and that made the company very happy and it was really good feather for the cap and so i felt like i had a you know i felt like the comedy really prepared me to be good at that you know just saying something funny and when you look at it you're like oh that's funny not oh this is an ad for candy you personally what is your favorite candy Oh my God! Look at me, Tom. You like candy. I love, I love the bit it. you did about taking your kids to the taffy pull and in, in uh, Gatlinburg. In Gatlinburg. Yeah, that was a great story. Thank you. Um, favorite candy is pro- all time probably a Reese cup, I like a Reese cup. But my kid has a peanut allergy, so we I haven't had a Reese cup in four years. But uh, I love it all, man. That's that's my that's my uh, you know vice. Because I, sure. I still eat a lot of candy. And, uh, you know, to be a grown man uh, <laughs> in the candy aisle uh, raises eyebrows sometimes. Well, last week I was on vacation and uh, needed to retake a picture um, that was basically a pile of all the different products that Airheads and Mentos make in the same picture. Because they're doing a promotion where if you, if you buy any two products from either brand... You can get a free song or movie download or whatever. So I needed a picture of all this product, and I had none of it with me on vacation. So I had to, so I had to go to the the Walgreens and buy like seventy five dollars worth of Airheads and Mentos, which is still not lost on me as an adult of how fun that is to mm-hmm. just do. Even though I can't, you know, I, I won't be eating at all. Uh, but to just be able to. For my job, have to go buy eighty dollars worth of candy. Pretty fun. You got to write it and off. And then write it off. Yeah. Yeah. Um I love jelly belly jelly beans. What's your favorite jelly belly? Uh you know what? I think probably um uh, watermelon, tangerine. Little fruity flavors. Uh, yeah, I like the fruity flavors. And see I like the I like the toasted marshmallow. Yeah, I'm not crazy about the buttered popcorn. And the buttered popcorn, the popcorn is, it's a weird one. I like it. <clears throat> and uh, years ago, I was on the radio in San Francisco, and someone called from Fairfield, California. And the DJ in San Francisco went, oh, Fairfield, what a shithole or whatever. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. That's where Jelly Belly Jelly Beans are made. Um, that, that place <laughs> is of great uh, significance. Somebody from Jelly Belly was listening and sent me a package to the <laughs> San Francisco Punchline. And it was like a Jelly Belly backpack. It was literally the little Jelly Bean Man, which yeah. I gave to my young niece at the time. And um, uh, like a big Whitman sampler full of candies. But they also put me on the... Um, I got to be a, a taster. Once a month, they would send me a new, oh, a new flavor. So great. And there was like a card where you would rate it and say what you thought about it. And um, I remember the, they, they came out with a Tabasco flavor. And I liked Tabasco, but I didn't like it. When did that stop? Candy. It ran for like a year. Yeah, I wish Jelly well, I Belly. I love would... Jelly Belly Jelly Beans. So. Yeah, I wish Jelly <laughs> Belly would put me back on there. Um, and then it's, I think it's really cruel in Amsterdam. There's all these candy places that have, 
you know, these like stoned oh, tourists. Yeah. You're gonna spend like of course fifty euros on. Well, I was in. Uh, but let me do. Okay, go ahead. No, go ahead. Fin you please finish. I just wanted to say, what I have discovered in the last few years, and I would put up there with all-time greatest candies in the world. Chewable, lemonheads. Yeah. Have you had those? Not. I don't know if I've had. The, and like, they're just fruity. Not, they're not. They're not. not the, they're not, not all the lemon. Classic ones. No, 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 no. Not okay. the classic lemonheads. The little hard. Okay. It, it, you can get it at Walgreens. It's not. It's it's made by the Lemonhead Red Hots people. Red Hots is another one of my favorites. Yeah, classic. Um, yeah, I can um, see you with all the the Boston baked beans. Yeah. Maybe? So what is that like? The Ferrara company. Yeah. And it was funny. They always said "Say no to drugs" on the label right. when you opened it up, but like it it's almost a like a drug. <laughs> they're like so and they're true. like it's like taking pills. If yeah. You're a kid, so it conditions you to do drugs. And if it wasn't for drugs, they wouldn't. I wouldn't have bought a lot of those. Yeah. Um, when I had the munchies. <laughs> but uh, chewy lemon heads. I'll give them a try. Man. Wow. That's all I'm going to say. One of the greatest candies ever. Um, that's it. All right. I'll and they're fruity. That's all, it's not all, it's not all, it's not, you think lemon, it's going to be like a lemon head, but they're, they're chewy and they're all different flavors. Airheads will, uh, you know, one of my jobs is not just to come up with content, but it's to really monitor the Twitter and Facebook and the conversations that people are having about the brand so that I can interject if they're not pleased and, you know, try to make it better for them. Or what's really cool is Twitter affords me the opportunity to see if like celebrities say something about the brand. Then I can reach out to them from the brand's account and say, you know, hey, if you're a fan of Airheads, We'll be happy to send you a VIP kit, and they'll send out this sweet box with a bunch of product in it and a card that says, "Here's a." It's basically like a hotline, and it says, "If you need more, call this number, and we'll send you more." To celebrities only, you do that. Uh, yeah, it's or it people was, who complain. Not to people who complain. We'll we'll still take care of them. You know, if they say, "Hey, you know, I bought this big bag, and there's only one watermelon in it," then they'll send them a shit ton of watermelon, or you know. What were you about to say about candy that cut you off? And that was it, actually. About okay. about the we the brand Airheads will do that, and Mentos will do that if they hear someone of well, certain stature start, saying something. About I'm going to start complaining about Airheads. So well, you'll don't send complain me. about it. Tell them how much you love it, and it's still the same result. Oh, okay. Then they'll still send it if you're favorable. Well, you know somebody. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. Um, you are a huge Cincinnati Reds fan. I am. And I just want to say that I have always admired the Cincinnati Reds because uh, the, Cincinnati, the city of Cincinnati has always been uh, unabashedly and unashamedly pro-communism that they named their team the Reds. <laughs> and it is something I have always admired about the Cincinnati Reds, that you guys took a pro-communist stance in a kind of a laborer city. What are you? Well, you. I see a. I saw a San Francisco Giants tag on your backpack. I'm a Giants fan. But I remember when we worked together in Atlanta, uh, you were very into what the Nationals were doing. Well, I had a Nationals hat. Yeah, I was born in Washington, D.C. And my dad took me and my brothers to the last Washington Senators game. So it was kind of a big deal when Washington got, got a team again. A team again. Um, I. You know, I think I think that part of it is just culturally growing up here. The way I feel about baseball and the Reds is just—I mean, it's just sort of, 
you know, it's part of the doctrine around here. But my dad was a giant Reds fan. Your dad took you to games. My dad's the reason I like baseball. You my know dad also like... worked for Kenner Toys, um, so that that that's where my affinity for Star Wars comes into play because that Kenner was, made the Star Wars. They made the Star Wars toys, and then they later made the starting lineups, which were the little, the first sports action figures that came out. Um, so he would have some of the Reds players come to his work when they would do a figure for them and he'd bring home a baseball signed by Pete Rose or, you know, that's, that's what's weird for me is like now I'm, now I'm really in with the Reds. I'm on the board for their community fund and I do their golf outing and I perform at it every year and I'm friends with several of the players and all the front office and broadcast and being in those circles, it's still weird for me. Like as a comic, I could be around A-list celebrities and have an easier time talking to them than I do, like, Ron Oster, the second baseman for the Reds in the 80s. You know what I mean? Like, they're still just something that... They're, like, godlike. Yeah, they really are. Well, like, the Cleveland Indians have... Uh, their symbol is the, the Indian with the big, goofy smile. Um, do you think the Reds would ever incorporate Vladimir Lenin as, like, <laughs> their logo? I think that'd be pretty Well, they cool. started out as the Red like, Legs. They great just great communist legs. figures, like, with a bat. That'd be awesome. The mighty Casey didn't strike out. He was taken in for questioning because he was <laughs> affiliated from some... Meeting he What about uh, it? Seems like but now, now my kids are Reds. That's uh, that's what I was getting to. Is now, you know, I've always been a Reds fan. Now my kid is super into the Reds and baseball, and he's only he's not even four yet. So now it's like I'm passing it on, and and I you know he I can watch the game and go to the games because I want to, but also because he wants to. That's great. Uh, I grew up a huge Pete Rose fan. And um, absolutely loved Pete Rose. And uh, now it looks like the tide might change where he might get into the Hall of Fame. I mean, nope. you don't think it will? Well, it was about to, and then he, then the news came out earlier this week that, I don't know if you've seen this no. yet. Spoiler. Uh -uh. So the, there's been all this groundswell with the going into the All-Star game and the commissioner saying, I'm open to hearing his case for possible reinstatement. And the one thing he's maintained this whole time is that he never bet while he was playing. It was all while he was a manager. And then this past Monday, ESPN released documents that have been under seal for 26 years. That he did. That in his final season as a player, he bet like 72 times, mostly on the Reds and mostly on them to win. But it just... Like, the one thing that he held on to was that he never did that when he was a player. And then this week comes out that he did. So, that was like... That, that's, a lot of people were saying that was like the nail in the coffin for mm. reinstatement or the Hall of Fame. I mean, talk to anyone in this city, their, their opinion hasn't changed. And I'm sure people had their mind made up before that story came out or not. But it just it didn't didn't look good for what they were trying to do. Uh, I grew up in Orlando with spring training, and when he was the manager of the Phillies, uh, when he was the player manager, yep. that one season that he was player manager, uh, I waited outside with about 30 or 40 other 12-year-olds. I was 12 with my ball. Yeah. And uh, he was the last one to come out. And, uh, and then everybody was, oh, Mr. Rhodes, Mr. Rhodes. And then he pushed past all of us. 
and he didn't sign any for any of the kids. Yeah. And um, because of the Charleston shooting and those people forgiving that killer, um, I realized that there was a lot of people that I needed to forgive in my life. So now I can finally say I forgive people. <laughs> well, if nothing else was gained from this conversation. Pete Rose is forgiven. He, we put that out there. And a lot of other people I was mad at. <laughs> so, but I've never been mad at you, Josh Need. Uh, I love Tom. you. And hey, man, with your t-shirt company, what was it? Eight years ago, we were going to... What I did a joke about Hillary Clinton, and the punchline was... Hillary is the, the man. man. Yeah. And you go, we should make a shirt for that. And I didn't think she was going to be the presidential uh, uh, the oh, nominee oh, for the yeah. Democratic Party. So now, uh, if she gets the, uh, the nomination uh, in 2016, why don't we make that shirt? You're preaching to the choir. Hillary is the man. Yeah. I love it, man. I like it. Okay, in closing, is there any words of wisdom or advice that you'd like to give to the people of the earth? Um, yes. Tom Rhodes is a beacon of hope for humanity and comedians. And he has the luxury of being at the top of his game for so long that he's made a name for himself. So when people come to, when Tom Rhodes comes to town, People know who Tom Rhodes is, and they want to come see his show for that reason. So what I what I would like to ask of people is, when you see the Josh Sneeds of the comedy business come to your town, give them a shot. Don't don't think just because you haven't heard of someone that it's not going to be a good show, because uh, you know I haven't had the um, the television success necessary to build a big following of people who are lined up waiting for me to come to their town. But I have put in the necessary amount of years to where I think that if you, uh, if you come out and see me or people of my ilk, that uh, you'll, you'll be happy that you took a chance. So it's a cliche, but support live comedy. Go out and see people. Have a good time. Don't just wait for a celebrity to be there before you go to the comedy club. Well, you're a funny, lovable guy, Josh, and I think your television fame is coming, or internet fame, whatever uh, the medium transforms into, and uh, maybe with your inside connections at the Cincinnati Reds, you can talk to them about my Vladimir Lenin proposal. <laughs> I'll see what I can do, and uh, and uh, it's a it's an absolute honor to to be your friend and be on the show. So thanks for having me. I love you, Josh Need. Long love may you, you run, brother. Thank you, man. Long may you run. I don't run.